This weekend has been our fall retreat for our students. And what we've been talking about, what RP stands for, is revolutionary purity. And this whole curriculum that we've been doing, this this whole curriculum this weekend that we've been doing has been talking about purity and how to stay pure uh, with your heart, with your mind, and with your body. And that's what we focused on this weekend. It's been exciting uh, to be with these students. I had the privilege to stay with the senior high boys, which means it was also kind of smelly at times. Um, especially we're playing, uh, we're playing ping pong and we're in a room that's somewhat small, just large enough for a ping pong table and some sides. And by the time you get about 10 sweaty guys in there, it smells pretty bad. So Leslie and Tony, I apologize for that. Um, but this morning we're talking about revolutionary purity and we're looking at this letter that Paul had uh, written to the Ephesian church. Uh, the Ephesian church was very close to Paul's heart. Um, it was, he's writing from the perspective of a pastor and of a close friend. So when we look at this passage this morning, and when we read it again here in just a minute, we need to remember that he is writing to people that are extremely close to him. The first three chapters of this book, Paul has talked about um, the Christian doctrine and what saves us and what has saved us out of our sin and four, five, and six Uh, Chapters 4, 5, and 6 of this chapter of this book talk about the practical implications of living the Christian life. So let's read this passage uh, one more time if you would go there with me. Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, creating the likeness of God, and true righteousness and holiness. Um, This past week, I read a story in a book that was uh, kind of, uh, that kind of coordinated with the studies that we were doing. And in this book, I read a story about a, a kid named Taylor. Taylor was 11 years old, and he went on the internet. This is a story that happened two years ago. He went on the internet to look up baseball gloves because he wanted a baseball glove because he was playing baseball. And he goes on there, and he types in something in a search engine, and what comes up instead is obscene photos of girls. And what he does is he he feels dirty and feels kind of nasty, but he's drawn to these obscene photos. He's drawn to them. There's something that he can't take his eyes off of. So what he does is because of this one-time event, he doesn't tell anybody. And time after time after time, he finds himself going back to these. And by the time he's 13, he is addicted to looking at these photos daily. And by the time he's 13, his purity, his innocence is gone. And what, what we're looking at this morning is the fact that this idea of sex and self-satisfaction had a stranglehold on 
tailor and in our culture it has the same effect. In our culture today, in 2013, we have pushed on us this idea by media and by friends and by family members that you just need to satisfy yourself in whatever means necessary. The people that Paul is writing to were facing the same thing. The people that Paul writing to in Ephesus um, we're in a culture that, are, that it was so similar to ours. He's writing to a city that by most secular historian standard, standards was one of the most nasty, vile cities in the Near East. They had a goddess called Artemis, and they had a temple that was dedicated to her. And the way that you worshiped this God, Artemis, was you went into the temple on a frequent basis and you would have sex with as many of the temple prostitutes as you possibly could. If you wanted to make it an even better celebration, they also had a God of alcohol, which meant you would get wasted before so and then go in and that would make the celebration all the better. Now, we, 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 don't, we don't know in our culture, we're not familiar with that particular celebration, but the idea behind that is no different today. Pleasure-seeking and self-satisfaction in our culture is rampant. Our, our culture is telling us, is telling these teenagers that you just need to make sure that you feel good about what you do and you will be all right. We like to think as 21st century people that maybe we're more dignified or more intelligent about some of this stuff, but the fact of the matter is they realize that they worship sex and self-satisfaction, so they dedicated a temple to it. We don't sometimes realize that what our culture tells us and what we seek is actually what we worship. Sometimes that's something that we don't actually focus on that we worship what we want to have instead of what God desires for us. So Paul's writing to the Ephesians has all the relevance to us in 2013 as it did then. The first characteristic we see today, what we're called to do is to not live a carnal lifestyle. Carnal just means fleshly or worldly or seeking out your own pleasure. We know that we are called not to live a carnal lifestyle. And I know called is not here in chapter, in verse 17, but if we look back at Ephesians 1, Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, Paul says, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. We are called not as a believer. Remember, Paul's writing to Christians. We are called not to live a carnal lifestyle lifestyle. There are four characteristics of carnal people that we're going to see in the first part of this passage. And it's what, if you're a believer and you walk with Christ today, this is what you have been called out of and what we are called to stay out of. It also may be something that you look at and you're like, hey, I've realized that I am caught up in some of these things. And God is calling that out this morning. Or maybe you're sitting here and you don't know Jesus and these characteristics are your life. The first characteristic of 
carnal people is that their minds are futile. This is a word that we don't use a whole lot. You may say futile, however you want to say that. I prefer that way. Um, But that word just means something that's useless or unnecessary. It's like trying to teach algebra to, you know, preschoolers. Trying to teach algebra to to me, for that matter. You know, it's useless. It's just not going to work. Unbelievers, carnal minds are futile. The futile mind is set on thinking there is no higher authority than whatever I desire. The second thing we see, unbelievers' minds are darkened by sin. Their minds, Paul says, are darkened because of the hardness of their heart. A hardened heart, listen to this statement, a hardened heart toward God is a refusal to know and understand that he is king and that his ways are ultimate. A hardened heart is the refusal to know that God is king and that his ways are ultimate. Unbelievers' minds are spiritually and morally calloused. Carnal minds are so dominated by sin that they have forgotten what decency actually is. We use the word callous today when we're talking about maybe calloused hands or calloused fingers. I know I started playing guitar in the eighth grade, and for the first two months, I had an electric, so it wasn't even as really as difficult sometimes as, as an acoustic can be to play. And I, I, I had a guitar, and for the first two months, like, my fingertips hurt so bad. I even brought blood a couple of times. I think that was because I was being stupid. But, like, my fingertips hurt so bad. But eventually what happens, you play so much that you build up calluses on your fingers so that you don't feel sensitivity anymore maybe if you're uh i used to work in construction as well and and the more that you work and you don't wear gloves your hands become so calloused i mean i still look at my hands here and have calluses and i've been out of that business for four years and my your hands become so callous that you can just pick up things that once hurt your hands and now don't because you've lost all sensitivity to that pain Paul says that carnal minds are insensitive toward sin. You just don't care anymore. Sin, whether that be a broad statement or whether it be something that you know that you struggle with, sin is something that you don't feel sensitivity to any longer and you just do it. Many times sin has that effect on believers, just like unbelievers' minds may be calloused and spiritually hardened. The sin that once brought you shame and guilt is now something that you turn to repeatedly. Maybe, maybe some of us in this room this morning are allowing things into our lives or into your lives that you feel no sensitivity to anymore. It used to be something that you would turn away from, but now it is something that does not bother you. Maybe is it a need for gossip? I know this is, this is obviously bad in, in schools, but you feel this need to talk about something that has nothing to do with you, but you, you, you want to. It's something that you feel like you have to turn to. Maybe it's hidden pornography. That used to be something that was so, something that you felt so bad about doing, but now you've become so callous that it's something that doesn't bother you whatsoever maybe it's questionable relationships maybe it's a relationship if you're a married person in the room that you know hey this relationship may be going too far and I really like I don't know if it is then maybe you should just 
stop whatever that relationship is right now. Or if you're a single person in the room and there's a relationship that you know is not leading you toward Christ or leading you toward godliness, you should cut that off immediately. Maybe it's anger harbored towards someone. Something that you, you just cherish and you really dislike that person so much. And we like to make the big you know, statement that like, there's a difference between hate and really bad dislike and there's not. You have anger harbored towards someone that you will not let go of and that you're okay with. And what that's doing is causing you to be blinded to other sin as well, Paul tells us then one thing that you need to do this morning is you need to pray that God will reveal to you what that sin may be that is keeping you from walking with him more closely, that is keeping you from being sensitive to other sin. Because God will reveal that to you, and God may have already revealed that to you this morning. The fourth characteristic is that unbelievers' minds are eager to go and find more sin. We know this because Paul says in verse 19, they have become callous and have given themselves to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity means that you're so self-absorbed and saturated by sin that you seek it around every corner. Your mind and your heart is so focused on sin that that's the only thing that can seem to bring you any joy for a moment. This is what the carnal mind is focused on. If you're a follower of Christ, this is what you're called out of. But this is something that our culture tells us, that you need to be determined to seek your own satisfaction at all costs, regardless of anyone else. Self-satisfaction becomes the ultimate goal. This is the deceptive nature of sin. This is the deceptive nature of sin, is that the more that you do something that is sinful the more you need to. I've heard it said before that sin is like a drug. The more you take, the more you want, and the more you want, the more you need. Some of you this morning are in that place, and it's a scary place to be because you are so focused on yourself and your sinfulness has blinded you to God's standard And the only thing you can turn to is more and more sin. But what we're going to see in the second part of this passage is that it's only in Christ when you're accepted and you shouldn't be, when you deserve punishment and don't get that. Instead, you get rewarded. When you are hopeless and you receive hope from Jesus, that you can only be ultimately satisfied. And our second calling is that we're to be called to live in Christ. Remember that Paul is talking to Christians. He's reminded them in these first three verses of their former way of life. And he's saying, you are called now to live in Christ. Whereas your former way of life was self-centered, seeking satisfaction and callous toward God. Now you are sensitive towards sin and your focus is on godliness and being with and like Jesus. As a believer, we've got to understand this. All of us have to, have to understand this. That as a believer, if you're a follower of Christ in this room, you must stand in stark contrast to our culture. We are called to do that. We're not called to look like everybody else. We're not called to act like what the world tells us to act like. We are called to stand in contrast to the rest of our culture. 
It's kind of like watching a TV that's normal and then watching a TV that's in high def. You know, like I used to not think that was a big deal until I actually saw a high def TV. And I was like, wow, you know, you see the football field and like you just want to run into the TV because you feel like you're there. You know, like we are called to live in stark contrast to what this world tells us. Paul's writing to a church that was that was a small church, a small group of people that was in a city full of sinfulness. And that's tough. Like, we know that that's tough. Maybe you feel that way when you go to work. Everybody that you talk to at your work maybe has totally and completely different desires than you do. Maybe it's with your family members. You have family members that are completely and totally against what you stand for, and you feel like you're the only person who has different desires than what your family has. I know I go up to the high school about uh, two times a week, usually, on Wednesday morning and a time for lunch. And I have the opportunity to hang out with some students, but I also have the um, opportunity, I guess you could say, of seeing students who are so wrapped up in seeking to find approval and seeking to find satisfaction that they look for it in so many ways that promise it, but that cannot fulfill that promise. It's something that if, if you were to go up there and watch and you're walking with God and you go up there and you look and you watch these students, you are bothered by the fact that they are morally and spiritually calloused. Students, you have the opportunity to see that every single day that you walk into school. People are morally and spiritually calloused because their heart is hardened toward Jesus. You are called to stand in stark contrast to what they are being and saying. Parents, I'll I'll say this. You also have the right and every ability to monitor your kids, what they do, their their phones, and the people they hang out with. And I would say maybe if you're kind of on the line of saying, hey, like I want to do that, but like I don't want to make them mad or whatever, make them mad. Like, because the fact is, in our pluralistic culture that says that do whatever you want to do and it makes you feel good and whatever is right is whatever you want right to be, if you don't raise your kids in a godly house that's instilling biblical principles, our culture will. Our culture will if you don't. 1 John 2, 15 through 17 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, listen to this, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Paul said, this was your former way of life, and now you are called to live in Christ. He says, but this is not the way you learned Christ. Verse 21 says, assuming you have heard about him and been taught in him as the truth in Jesus. When we think about being taught Jesus or taught biblical principles, it's easy to think about just Sunday school. And if you ever happen to to teach a Sunday school class or a Bible fellowship class or ever been a part of that, you have those people that you can ask any question and the answer is like Jesus. You know, or you say like, what's wrong with the world? Sin. And it's like, thank you. What's wrong with your world? Sin. And it's like, tell me something more. Being taught in Christ is not just having the right answers. It's being so enamored. It's being so focused on the gospel that Jesus has changed and saved you, that you devote your life to him and to his standard. 
It's one thing to know what truth is and what truth isn't. It's another thing to act out what truth is and act out what truth isn't. People in third world countries believe um, in being freed from whatever poverty that they face. They believe in freedom so much that it drives them to risk everything to come to a place like America so that they feel like they are then saved. They risk everything to come here because they believe in their freedom so much. How much have we risked because we have trusted and walked in living with Jesus? We are called to put off our old self, Paul says, and to put on the new. Here's what this means. I know that a lot of times the old, when we read passages like this, like in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, we see stuff like old creation, new creation, old self, new self, and we, we think, you know, what does that exactly mean? The old self is everything we've talked about in the first part of this sermon, the, the first point. Carnal living. That's the old self. But we're called to put on the new self. And you think, how do I do that? You trust in Christ. You trust in Jesus and what he has done on the cross to clothe you in a new you. The only way your old sinful ways can be discarded is to trust in Jesus. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is, this is not your own doing, it is a gift from God. So we see the only way to take off the old self and put on the new is to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin and let his Holy Spirit change you. I know we, in our culture especially, we like to try to do and do and try to, try to gain more and, and, and we have this self-help kind of attitude, but like the way that you put off the old self and put on the new starts with trusting in Christ. When you do that, God places in you new moral and spiritual capabilities. God gives you new desires and new passions. God plants in you new ideas and a new way of thinking that focuses your mind in a way that it hasn't been focused before. 2 Peter 1, 3-4 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the excellence of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. God's divine power has granted to us everything we need to live a godly life. The verbs to put on the old self and put on the new talks about a past action that we now receive benefits from. In other words, we trust in Christ that he washes our old way of life away and we trust that he also gives us new desires and new passions so that we can have our minds renewed. Verse 23 says we are to have our minds renewed and to put on the new self. How do we do that? This is an ongoing process. This is not something that happens today and ends tomorrow. This is a lifelong process of having your minds renewed. The resources for spiritual renewal, for mind renewal, is the Holy Spirit of God, is prayer, and is God's word. Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. 
This means we take this book and we look at it, and it's not just a compilation of letters and stories, but it is God's active word that teaches us how we should walk with Jesus and how to have a life of fulfillment and satisfaction. Not because we read this book and think, man, I just want to gain something for myself, because we realize that we deserve nothing, but Jesus has given us everything. It says that we... We have our minds renewed after the likeness of God and righteousness and holiness. These are two words that we just don't throw out every day either. But righteousness simply means right standing before God. You've been accepted by the Lord. We have to understand that we're accepted by Jesus, not based on our own merit, but based on what he's done so that he can then make us holy, which is free from the contamination of sin. We've been called out of a carnal lifestyle that looks and this culture and our world tells us to do what you desire and please yourself. We've been called out of that to live in Christ. What I mean by that is I I made sure to word that we don't live like Jesus. You cannot trust in Jesus and read what the Bible says about him and have some really good morals. But to truly walk with Jesus, live like him, you have to ultimately know him first. I have the opportunity to lead a Bible study of guys from the football team at McDowell High School. And it was cool about three weeks ago, three or four weeks ago, we were sitting in the steakhouse and this, uh, this kid, we were talking, and we had had some really good conversation that probably only should happen at a table full of, you know, football players. And we were sitting there, and we, we, we got to talking about the gospel. You know, Jesus saving us when we didn't deserve it, and when us not being able to do anything for ourselves. And this kid looks at me, and I walked through the gospel for a second, because we had talked about his struggle with, with a particular sin. And he looked at me, and he said, so hang on a second. You're telling me that that I don't have to do anything myself. That I trust Jesus for the forgiveness of my sin. And then he begins to change me. And I was like, man, I don't even have to say anything else. I was like, yes. That's exactly it. And he kind of had this perplexed look on his face. And he said, that seems too easy. And I said, that's the beauty of the gospel is that at times it may seem easy to think I'm just forgiven because I've trusted in Jesus. That doesn't mean that we all of a sudden become spiritually lazy. Remember the resources for mind renewal is God's word and prayer, which means devoting yourselves to those things. But understanding that we have been saved from our sin when we shouldn't have been, that God promises eternal glory to those who trust in him when we don't deserve it is the start to living a life in Christ. So what I want to do this morning is I want us to bow our heads and I want us to pray for a second. And, and as we're praying, I want us to do two things. I want you to pray that God will show you maybe that particular sin or sins that is keeping you from walking with him that has blinded your, blinded your, your eyes, your mind, and your heart. And then pray that God will just allow you to be able to trust and settle 
in knowing that you have to do nothing for your salvation, but Jesus does it for you.